Hi there, Origin Podcast listeners. Prashant here. I know it's been a while since our last episode, and the world continues to change a lot day to day. Today, I got to speak with Andre Hamilton, who leads DoorDash's business for companies providing food to employees. She was previously leading the same business for Caviar when it was owned by Square before it was acquired by DoorDash in 2019. She was a management consultant before all that, advising mostly technology clients on strategic initiatives. She shares her perspective on the food delivery market, how her team has adapted to closed offices during COVID-19, how her consulting skills have translated to being an operator at a tech company, and why she thinks wearables are an exciting category. As a Black female leader in technology, she also shares her perspective on how companies can properly tackle diversity and inclusion problems in their own way. Hope you enjoy. Good morning. Hey, good morning. How are you? I am good. How are you? Great. Just another sunny day in LA here. Awesome. Yep. It's uh, it's not too bad here in Chicago itself. It's a little overcast, but uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. And I know it took a long time to schedule this, but I'm glad we could finally get on the horn. Me too. Looking forward to it. Awesome. So why don't you just tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, uh, what your background is and, and what you do now? Sure. So my name is Andre Hamilton. I grew up in a small town in Tennessee. Um, in college, I studied civil engineering, and then I came out west to do a master's in management science and engineering at Stanford. From there, I discovered management and strategy consulting, and I worked at Bain and Company for about five years, where I worked mostly in technology, media, and telecom cases. But I also had about an 18-month stint in South Africa where I got to work in the mining industry. And, and that was a really big, important time in my life, and especially where I discovered I wanted to be an operator. So from Bain, I moved to Caviar, which is a food delivery platform. And I started as a general manager for the Oakland and Berkeley markets, which we called the East Bay. I did that for a few months, and then I launched the Caviar Sacramento market. Um, and that's where I really got my first experience of starting something more from scratch. Um, and then after a year of being a general manager at Caviar, I moved to lead our corporate delivery product. And I've been doing some version of that ever since. Um, and the job has changed significantly every uh, six months, which has kept me learning and um, really excited. Awesome. And then... You eventually, Caviar now was spun out into DoorDash, which is where you are now. Exactly. So at the time I joined, Caviar was a part of Square. And last November 2019, we were acquired by DoorDash. Got it. And has your role stayed similar or has it changed significantly with the change in ownership? It's been similar. I'm still focused on the corporate delivery uh, market. And so now I lead growth and revenue for corporate delivery products and services across both brands of both DoorDash and Caviar. And my team is still working to ensure our corporate customers are satisfied and, um, and to grow revenue specifically from that segment. Got it. Okay. Well, you know, in terms of um, corporate delivery and, you know, we just tackle the elephant in the room right now, like with COVID-19, 
uh, lockdowns happening uh, across the country the last few months. How has that changed your guys's kind of strategy of serving your customers, your strategy around growth and uh, any other kind of go-to-market plans that you would have? Yeah, um, as most people experienced, but our team did as well, Q2 was pretty wild. Um, Our team is normally focused on employees eating in a workplace. So (laughs) COVID-19 aggressively upended that model um, since so many people moved to working from home and out of how we typically define the workplace. Um, So we did see a huge need for our product to support people, even as they have moved to work from home. And they're still looking for convenient options to feed themselves and sometimes their families during busy working hours. So Mm -hmm. that need changed slightly because of where they were, but it's still important that they have convenient food options. Um, And we've also been working with companies that are learning and trying to help their employees adapt to this through various wellness benefits. And a lot of times that is including food perks. Got it. Okay. So, so companies are still kind of taking it seriously as a benefit for employees, even though they're stuck at home in their home offices with their kids, they still need to eat. Yeah, they still need to eat. And there are new challenges and and more constraints or different constraints on people's time. Um, mm-hmm. And basically because of the flexibility and the wide selection of products we've developed over the years for corporate customers, we were still able to serve them even when those employees moved home. So a couple of examples, our expense meals product works just as well to provide employees with a meal stipend if that's what they want to provide for their employees, regardless Uh of where they are located. Um, So that was one thing that was just a slight change. And then because the pandemic was so, um, you know, so upending, we were able to accelerate some new product offerings Mm-hmm. Um, one of which was Dash Pass for Work. And that is DoorDash's subscription uh, yep. product. Yeah, and I so, get a notification about that every couple of weeks. You get a what? Dash Pass push notification. Not, not the for work one, but just the consumer Dash Pass push notification. I get that every few weeks. Yes. So yeah. we, uh, we basically took that and we're letting companies that want to provide that as a benefit to their employees so that their employees, when they use it, have lower delivery and service fees on all of their deliveries at home. Um, And so in addition to partnering with companies that wanted to offer it, one of the exciting things we were able to do was in April, we offered that for free to all healthcare employees, um, including first responders, medical personnel, and hospital staff. And and then finally, we've seen some just totally new use cases, such as virtual events, which weren't much of a thing before, but now um, are very, uh, very much how people are still connecting. And, you know, overall, it's been undoubtedly challenging, but we've mm-hmm. been able to meet our existing customers where they are and acquire some new ones by staying in close communication around what are the problems that they're seeing and how are they trying to adapt to those, uh, those new challenges. That's awesome. Um, if we if we step back for a second and kind of just look at the food delivery market as a whole, I mean, I think it's fair to say it's it's fairly competitive. And and oddly enough, you know, or Origin, we invested in early in Grubhub back in the late two thousands. I think first investment was in two thousand seven, and obviously food delivery has taken off since then. Grubhub was an early success story, but there's obviously been many other companies, including DoorDash, that have found a lot of success. I, but I think for outsiders, you know, and, and including me, looking at the industry now, 
it just seems like it's so competitive. There's so much money that's been kind of poured in by venture capital and other investors. And it, it, it's one of those things that it's hard to figure out, like, why is somebody going to win? How are the margins going to eventually be ju- justify all the investment in the category? You know, how do you think about kind of how many players there are, how the margins can be pretty thin and kind of how, how competitive the industry is? Yeah, so we really do focus on our customers. Um, We have a value customer uh, obsessed, not competitor focused. And so I think for us, we are the nation's leading on demand uh, local logistics platform. And we have still the widest selection of local restaurants in the U.S. And Mm -hmm. so DoorDash is uniquely positioned to provide consumers with that maximum convenience and connect them to their favorite restaurants. And that's whether they're at home or like my team is focused on at the workplace whenever we do go back to work and we're able to orchestrate meals for any company size, any consumer need. And so Mm -hmm. I think for DoorDash, um, we're uniquely positioned in that way and really focused on our mission. Got it. And you you mentioned restaurants, which obviously, you know, the the supply engine here for now, but do you think that there's, kind of a future for some of the stuff we're seeing around cloud kitchens or other offerings like non-restaurant offerings to show up? Because, uh, you, you know, you mentioned DoorDash is just kind of a logistics platform at the end of the day, right? It's it's kind of the nation's leading logistics platform for food delivery. So does that mean that, you know, in, if we're thinking a few years out, like there's going to be restaurant offerings as well, but there can be a whole host of other offerings to meet customers where they are and provide food options? Yeah, I mean, DoorDash's mission is to empower local economies. And for us, that always starts with the merchant. And as Mm -hmm. you mentioned, a lot of it is with restaurants, but more broadly using our logistics platform. Um, And we're always looking for new ways to help our merchants reach the customers and meet their their rising expectations for convenience. Um, So specific to kitchens... DoorDash launched a kitchen in October of 2019, and we specifically focused on existing restaurant partners who we were already working with that wanted to really expand their reach and customer coverage in a more cost-efficient way. And so we enabled them through that kitchen launch to expand that reach without having to invest in the brick-and-mortar cost. Mm-hmm. And um, we're constantly investing in those innovations to help those merchants find new ways to reach more of their customers through our p- platform and run their business more efficiently, like kitchens, as you mentioned. Got it. All right. Last question about DoorDash. And then I want to talk a little bit about your your background. What's your favorite place to order from? Oh, man. Okay. So my more regular ordering is from Coswell's, which is a burger place in the marina in San Francisco. And it just makes me really happy and it it delivers so well. Um, (laughs) Recently, you know, in this shelter in place world, I had my first uh, anniversary with my husband. And, you know, normally we would have taken a trip or done something like that, or at least gone out to eat. But we ordered from Wayfair Tavern, which I'm have you been there in downtown? Yeah. 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 There, it was amazing. We had this amazing feast and it really felt special, um, a, a special delivery to commemorate that day for us. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I, I, Wayfair is very, very good. I, I wouldn't have expected that it would travel or like deliver as well, but, but it sounds like it, it did. 
Yeah, they had these burrata whipped mashed potatoes that were to die for. Nice, nice. Um, so in your intro, you know, you mentioned that you were in you you were at Bain Consulting for for five years, mostly in TMT Tech Media and Telecom, and then you kind of transitioned into being an operator in in tech at Square. And I'm curious how you felt like the skills translated from consulting to technology. You know, what did what didn't what you had to learn. Um, what, what you learned in consulting that maybe wasn't useful. Um, I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah. So I, I felt like the skills transferred really well for me actually. And, you know, in consulting, essentially you're learning how to learn what matters as quickly as possible. And that I use every day, um, as a operator in a technology industry, um, you also learn how to be 80-20, which I know uh, you're also familiar with, but means, you know, how do you focus on the 20% of issues that have 80% of the impact? And then finally, you learn how to influence without any authority. And in consulting, a lot of times you're working with people that are more experienced or more senior than you and needing to convince them um, to adapt your, adopt your solution. Um, mm-hmm. and a lot of times those folks also have a better understanding of that company specifically. And so mm-hmm. that's something that is very true. No matter what organization you're in, there are going to be times where you have authority other times where you need to influence without that. And consulting was a great, uh, place to learn that, that skill. Got it. Did you feel like, um, there was a skepticism, from some folks within the the kind of teams that you worked with uh, of of consultants or ex consultants because they you know some folks come from uh, just the technical background or they they've just worked in technology companies and they may view consultants with skepticism or did you not feel any of that? Yeah, I definitely felt some. I think when you first start because there is this stereotype that consultants are really good at coming up with solutions, but not necessarily implementing them or Mm -hmm. adapting as quickly. Mm -hmm. And I think that was one of the things I did have to learn pretty quickly out of the gate, um, which is not to let great get in the way of good. Um, Where in tech, it's, you know, it's better to ship something imperfect, learn as fast as possible and get real results and get real customer feedback so that you can iterate quickly. And in consulting, a lot of times you're working for larger companies. Um, It's on some of their stickiest issues that have maybe been around for years. And you have a limited amount of time, at least on that topic or project. So you don't have very many opportunities to get your point across and get buy-in from your clients. And so Mm -hmm. I remember my, I think it was my second week at Caviar, I Um, sent an email to my manager, a draft email that I was going to send to an important restaurant partner and was like, hey, is this okay to send to the restaurant? And I had a really, really awesome manager. um, And he was like, yeah, this is great, but you know, you can just send this, right? (laughs) And (laughs) it was like, oh, okay. Like, I thought maybe we'd need to do multiple revisions before like actually communicating with the customer, et cetera. And that was a big mind shift. Um, yeah. But it did happen in the, you know, the first couple of weeks. And once I got used to that mode of operating, it was really natural. And like any skepticism around that went away. 
has the has the company i guess because you were in, in spun out division but but now that you're at doordash you've probably seen some growth like as your teams or the overall unit or company has scaled in people have you noticed a big difference in like that kind of that kind of move fast and break things you know attitude versus something that's become more corporatized as the company has matured or have you not really felt that I haven't really felt that. Um, I think that I've had the privilege at working at two really great high growth companies that have um, been aware that that could happen and have made, you know, made changes as needed to keep our sense of urgency and keep the ball moving forward. And so there have been small things, of course, um, but but overall, I would say it's very comparable from from whenever I started at those companies. Got it. When you, and on the topic of like team and culture and things like that, you know, obviously the last few years, but, you know, acutely in the last six, six to 12 months, there's been kind of a focus on, um, you know, diversity and inclusion initiatives in tech. I mean, broadly, broadly in the, in the economy, in the workforce, of course there, there are issues, but specifically in tech, I feel like, I feel like it gets a specific focus and angle from the media because of maybe some of the prominence of some of these companies, you know, as they're growing quickly and going public and things like that. Um, you know, what's your general view on kind of the the problems that we see in technology, both in the Bay Area and elsewhere across the country and the world? Um, and, and what are some solutions that stakeholders could play? Employees like yourself, founders and management and companies, venture capital investors, limited partners of venture funds, et cetera. Like what are, what are some ways that we can start to, to solve this, these problems? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, a very hard question, um, but I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you asked it. Um, you know, I think that even in my years in tech so far, I have seen some progress and, and I'm a hopeful person. And, and so that's encouraging. Um, and I think it's important that it's, like you said, covered by the media and that companies are talking about it because, you know, the first step to solving a problem is admitting you have one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what's interesting and some of the reason maybe tech gets covered more on this is that progress is pretty slow on diversity. And it is uh, ironic in some ways for an industry that can move so fast on other challenges and, and changing the world as we know it um, so significantly and quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so to your question of like, what can people do? I mean, to really change diversity needs to be an actual business priority, um, held at the same level as, you know, business results and other things. And that means you're investing in it, you're setting goals, you're tracking against those goals and you're holding people accountable to them. And it also needs to be addressed with the same sense of urgency that a slowdown in growth or a miss on market expectations of profit would be. Um, recently, so at DoorDash, we are using our platforms to highlight and support Black-owned businesses and Black entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. DoorDash also donated a million dollars to Black Lives Matter and then to state and local organizations that were chosen by our Black employee resource group. Um, and the company has reaffirmed their commitment to combat racism and discrimination. So these are all great first steps, but I think we and the rest of the industry still has a lot more work to do. What what are some specific tactics that, you know, maybe you've employed on your team or you've seen work 
whether it's Square or DoorDash, like, you know, imagine you're talking to, you know, line unit line managers at other tech companies or, or GMs, like what, you know, obviously they, you can set targets, um, as you mentioned around like, hey, it's, it's a business priority, like we need to improve on these metrics. What are, what are the tactical things that they can do to, to do that? Because a lot of, you know, with the companies in, in our portfolio, the leaders um, that we talk to, you know, a lot of times things boil down to, hey, it's a pipeline problem. Like the only people applying to engineering jobs are, you know, Stanford and MIT grads, uh, mostly men, mostly white. Like we don't, you know, we don't really have a pipeline to be able to solve the diversity challenges on our product development team. And what are, you know, what should the response be? What should the tactical things be that they can do to change that from a pipeline excuse to kind of actionable change? Yeah, I mean, at the risk of being repetitive, I think if a company can operate well enough to have a business, so to exist and let alone succeed, then they have the ability and the muscle needed to address the problem of diversity. Uh Um, So let's take like a company example. Let's say you figure out your web conversion rate has halved week over week and you're not sure why. Your team is going to come up with a hypothesis on why that is. You're going to use data as best as possible to root cause what the issues are. You're going to come up with tactics or tests to improve the rate and then ship them and measure the results. Like uh-huh. diversity is the same thing. So so going to your um, point around the pipeline, like if that is where you as a company personally is, are seeing issues, like think about what are some of the things that you could test or try to address that. And that could be like, where are you actually sending people to recruit? If you're sending people only to the Stanfords and Harvards, like that is part of the problem. Are you really heavily dependent on referrals from employees that already are at your company, which are mostly white men? Well, you're Mm going to get mostly white men. So how can you push for referrals of people that are more diverse than your current uh, employee base? And there's lots of tactics depending on what those problems are. I remember long ago at Bain, I was um, involved in diversity recruiting. Um, And for your listeners that don't know me or didn't Google me, I'm a a Black woman, uh, which Mm -hmm. is why I'm very passionate about this. And so Mm -hmm. I was involved and we, Bain had analyzed that at the time, people were falling out of the second interview, second round interview. um, And that's where diverse candidates were really getting um, stopped. And so they basically created a workshop to help specifically diverse candidates and coach them on that part of the case interview. And so my overall point is whenever companies have problems that are specific to them, they come up with solutions that to specifically address that problem. And so it's not one size fits all, not all tactics are going to be needed or useful specific to your situation. I like that approach a lot, actually. It's actually the first time I think I've heard that particular framing of it, which is view it as a business problem and solve it the way you would any other business problem for your specific business. There's no prescription that will work for every company to do this. It just needs to be a priority, just like any other business problem would be for like your your example, web conversion dropping or whatever else, right? Uh, I I think that's a really good way of framing it and turning it back to the business to solve and look at what the, the root problems are, as opposed to, you know, somebody in the media or somebody outside just saying, okay, here's what everybody should do, which is not going to work for a lot of companies. 
Exactly. Um, like, and to use the conversion rate example, like a company wouldn't say, hey, we care about improving our conversion rate and not putting any activity behind it. Yeah. And they wouldn't tell their customers, hey, we need you to fix our conversion rate issue. And so yeah. it's funny how whenever you bring in diversity, it's like people, I don't know if it's fear or just because it's something new or seems different, forget that they know how to pro- solve really, really tough problems. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Do you are you familiar with the law, the law or laws that California has passed recently around kind of public boards, and I th- I think even some some rules around private company boards, just like adding diversity and requiring that of companies who do business in the state. Um, do you think those approaches are good, bad, smart, not? You know, what's your what's your opinion on those approaches? Yeah, I haven't stayed super close um, to the things that California has passed. I saw a few announcements of companies um, saying that they would require that. I think that that is good. um, And I'm generally supportive because a lot of times, you know, representation is really important. And if you can't see someone either in the C-suite of your company or on your board that looks like you, you feel like whether or not it's true, Um, there is some kind of ceiling on your success. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that is a tactical thing that does help and just um, says this is really important to us, so important that people at the top of our organization or on our boards um, are also diverse. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Um, Cool. The, The next topic I wanted to talk about is well, you're now in LA, but you were in San Francisco. And I feel like, you know, that's the hotbed of innovation, not just in this country, but probably the world, if you consider kind of the early stage technology market and and venture capital and where they meet, you know, what are some hot takes, if you will, that you have around predictions around, you know, where the venture ecosystem is going, where, you know, general technology trends that you're seeing could be specific to the the food market uh, or not. It could just be general general views that you had, uh, that you have. Yeah. I'm glad you phrased it as hot takes because this isn't a natural strength for me. Um, (laughs) I I much like prefer executing against grand visions versus, uh, coming up with them, but you know, some of the things I'm hoping technology will do, um, I'm hoping that technology and science can really help us completely change the current equation on climate change. There's no doubt we need sweeping policy and structural changes, um, but I'm also hopeful in innovation to kind of help us, you know, cut the Gordian knot, so to say, on um, on every all the data that we have to date about climate change. Mm-hmm. So that's one place that I'm kind of watching. Um, on a on a lighter note or like a more personal note, I'm a huge fan of wearables. And really love, you know, checking my, I wear Fitbit. Um, so I yeah. check my Fitbit app every day. How did I sleep, et cetera. Um, yeah. And I really love the health data that it's providing me. So I'm looking forward to that getting smarter and more advanced and being able to provide proactive recommendations on things I can do to improve my health or lifestyle that I'm not even aware of. Um, mm. So that, yeah. that's one piece that I'm, really excited about. Um, you going to be first in line for the uh, wearable implants that Apple's going to put in people? 
You know, I've made jokes about it because, you know, I have the air AirPods or earbuds. I can never remember what they're called. Yeah, um, AirPods, yeah. The AirPods. And I'm like, my husband jokes that they're attached to my ear. And I'm like, that yeah. would be a terrible thing if it was very <laughs> easy to <laughs> turn on and off. <laughs> Yeah, uh, no, that's that's cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm not, I don't wear the watch and the Fitbit. My wife does, and obviously, we we just had a baby, and like, there's all kinds of wearable things that you can do to monitor, and it's actually pretty useful. I think it, it adds a lot of peace of mind, and like you said, the passive value of just how did I sleep? You know, what are my blood sugar, like? How how's my body responding? How's my breathing? Um, there's a lot of companies doing great things in the space. Fitbit's one. Whoop, you know, that obviously the large tech companies. Uh, I think I think it's a pretty exciting market as well. It's also growing very very fast, so it's an exciting it's an exciting area. I, I do have one question on the the climate change topic you brought up, and and this is something that you know there's obviously a lot of investors that are solving problems where either the direct benefit or tertiary benefit, secondary or tertiary benefit could be to help uh, mitigate climate change. Do you view that as a solution that needs like a private solution, or do you think you know, it's largely going to be public and, and you know, international uh, coalitions of government solving that problem. Like I always, when I think about that topic, I always wonder how much can really get done without, you know, the constituency and the governments and the, inter- and the international community kind of following a script, right? Because, you know, we can make advances in battery technologies. We can help solve for renewable energies and help, help change some of the, some of the, output of, of what we're doing to harm the environment. But largely, you know, there's a lot of other countries that are industrializing or are growing much quicker than we are as the US. And so we're going to need at some point kind of international community to step in. So I'm, I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a very tough problem, which I am definitely not totally qualified to address. Um, but <laughs> using my um, what I do know, I think that we're going to need both. And um, like you said, there's only so much progress that will be made if we aren't able to make big policy changes and have international coalitions on what needs to be done. But I do believe in competition and the private markets. And I think that we, if, if technology creates things that are better solutions than what we have had in the past, that will also help us, um, make progress and advance. I know, uh, recently my husband did a, uh, video on a new motor, um, that is, I'm again, can't speak to all the details, but it, it, it's basically more efficient. We're only able to, even have this motor and this innovation now because of computing power and how it has um, increased. And Mm -hmm. it also um, can be cheaper to run. And so I hear things like that and I'm like, that is great because it's great for all the companies that need to use it. And it's uh, wonderful for the environment. And Mm -hmm. it's something that is new because of advances we've made in the supporting structures. Um, So I think that to answer your question. It's really both, um, but I wouldn't under undermine or under appreciate the impact that tech can have on that. Got it. Okay. Um, so if we fast forward kind of five or 10 years, what is Andre doing? Is she, is she, you know, general manager at DoorDash uh, still, or is she doing something else? Maybe in climate change, maybe not. 
maybe still operating, maybe investing. Where do you see yourself? Yeah, now you sound like my career coach, uh, which yeah. is fun. <laughs> um, no, the the most important thing to me, and it, maybe it sounds corny, but it's true, is continuously learning. I um, just really like experiencing new challenges and feeling like I'm putting myself in places where I can learn quickly and something new. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, I've had the privilege of working at two mid-size, high-growth companies. Um, so I'm intrigued about the thought in like five to 10 years of going to a larger company um, and experiencing some of the problems that come with being in a mature market. Mm -hmm. And um, I do love people leadership and operating. So I'll likely be doing that no matter where I go or land. Um, and then I have an interest in getting more involved in local politics um, mm -hmm. to hopefully play a part in improving my local community and neighborhoods. So mm -hmm. I think those those are the themes that I see when I look out into the distance um, of what I will be doing. Got it. Well, that sounds pretty exciting. And I'm excited to watch uh, some of those things or all those things come to fruition. Um, well, thanks a lot for, for jumping on the podcast. I'll give you back a little bit of time here because I know you're probably busy. But is there anything else you wanted to say or ask before we, before we sign off? I think one, one thing, just going back to diversity and inclusion, which I'm, I'm very, um, passionate about. So, you know, I get asked a lot, like, how are you, um, contributing to solving this problem? And one thing that comes to mind is, you know, as a black woman director in a tech, uh, company, like hitting my goals and succeeding is a big part of how I address it. Um, yeah. And I, I just wanted to share that because I, I think that's not something that people share all the time where I work hard, partially because I fear if I make a mistake, it could reflect in some way on my entire race. And I also really hope that if I succeed, it also is going to create more opportunities um, for other Black people. And yeah. so uh, I just wanted to share that going back to our conversation of thinking about, you know, as a person of color, some of the things that are top of mind for me, even as I'm uh, at work in my current job. Yeah, people, I mean, I, I've heard a version of that, which is, uh, and, and it's true, and, and you've obviously heard it and lived it, which is like the the pressure is even higher, like the bar, it's unfair, right, to to give yourself additional pressure because you feel like, you know, succeeding opens doors for, for people who look like you, but failing could close a lot of doors. And it's like unfair because that's not true for, you know, white men. <laughs> like they, It's not like they view their failure on a project as like a black mark for the whole for the whole race or, or all of white men. And it's, I, I guess it's just, it's just kind of true. It's sad that it's true, but it, it's a little unfair, but I guess like it, it matters, right? At the end of the day, do people see people like you and uh, who look like you succeed in an, in an ecosystem like tech where they're not used to seeing that and that can change perceptions, uh, whether it, you know, it's not gonna be overnight, but it's gonna happen over time. Exactly, yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Andre. Thanks for sharing all your thoughts um, on diversity and inclusion, as well as kind of DoorDash and food delivery and tech and, and kind of your journey from consulting to tech. Really appreciate you taking the time and best of luck and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks so much. It was awesome to connect with you. Awesome. Take care. Bye-bye.